Well, good morning. Okay, today we are in uh, 1 Corinthians 13 once more. Uh, we have been talking for some time now about the issue of unity in the church and uh, looked at a number of different passages, but we kind of camped out in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, which is a section that deals with unity from a number of different directions. Unity was a major problem in the church at Corinth, the church that Paul had founded. He ministered there for about two and a half years and then left, and he started getting reports about problems. And part of it had to do with unity. And uh, so in his letter back responding to some of these issues, he has this major section on unity. And right in the middle of it, sandwiched between chapters 12 and 14, is this beautiful section that is often read at weddings. And it's good to read it at weddings. It's, it's beautiful. It's wonderful. One of the most uh, uh, powerfully poetic passages in the entire Bible. But it wasn't written for weddings. Right? It was written for a church in crisis, actually a number of crises. And so uh, we need to be thinking about it as, as church-related, as body-related. And uh, that's, that's certainly what Paul was doing. So we need to understand him in that framework. And as we look at the different characteristics of love, we want to, we want to connect them back to the way things were functioning in Corinth and potentially the way they function in all churches. Okay? So... Last week, we began looking at the central section of this chapter, verses 4 to 7, which I think of as love's diagnostic, the kind of thing you do when you go to the doctor, and before you even see him, you have to fill out this long list and help him to understand your, spirit, your, uh, your health history, and you check off these different things. Now, that's, I think that's the way Paul wants this to function for the Corinthian uh, believers, he wants them to look at these characteristics of love and, and say, well, how am I doing? Uh, is, this, is this part of an illness or is this, is this a mark of health in our body? And most of the stuff he's listing is, is where they're having problems. So we should do the same thing. We should think about these various qualities of love and, you know, you might want to do a self-rating. You do a 1 to 10, or you could do a A, B, C, D, whatever you like, but ask yourself, is this the way love manifests itself in my life, or is this the way it, it doesn't manifest? And if we think about that individually, then we can also think about corporately together, how, how are we doing on these, okay? So we began last week looking at just the first uh, two behaviors of love. Love is patient, love can wait, and love is kind. It, it is merciful. It treats others well. It treats them with kid gloves, you might say. Love is patient, love is kind. Now we're going to pick up a few more of these behaviors this morning. Follow along as I read. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy 
and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge. And if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Now here's our diagnostic. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. All right, so we've looked at the first couple. Let's, let's continue thinking through with Paul what love looks like. How does it behave? Or as we now move into some negatives, how does love not behave? And the first one we look at is this. Love does not envy. Now, uh, Here's something that's true both in English and it's also true in the language of the New Testament, that, that the words that are used sometimes have a, a multiple meaning, or actually what they have is a, an area of meaning, and so you can use the same word sometimes positively and negatively. And this word for, for envy that Paul uses is one that he uses in, in both positive and negative ways. Uh, the fundamental notion of it is to strive, to desire, to exert oneself earnestly, to be zealous. And he uses it, uh, so here's, here's a runner, and she's striving to win. Well, that's, that's not a bad thing to do. Uh, and... In 1 Corinthians 12, in fact, the verse that introduces this chapter on love. Ah, I had a picture disappear. Okay, that happens sometimes. Uh, in 1231, here's what he says. Eagerly desire the greater gifts. He's been talking about... Uh, a various range of spirit-endowed capabilities that people have to serve in the body of Christ. And particularly, he's, he's doing a comparison between the gift of prophecy and the gift of speaking in tongues. And, uh, and he says, look, I want you to desire, eagerly desire, strive after the greater gifts. And in chapter 14, he's going to say, in that comparison between prophecy and tongues, prophecy is the greater gift to strive for. But now he takes a break. There's that, that positive use of the term, and now in discussing love, he takes the same idea of striving, and he says, you know, there, there's a negative way of striving that is not helpful and destructive to unity because it destroys love. It's incompatible with love. And so, in the bad sense, this striving is the idea of, of coveting, 
or envying, being jealous of what someone else has or does or knows or you know, all kinds of things we can covet or be envious of. So in chapter 3, he uses the same word, critiquing them. He says to this church that thought of itself as, as highly spiritual. He said, you are still worldly. For since there is jealousy, that's, that's our word, this negative striving, this desire to have what appropriately belongs to somebody else, to have it for ourselves. And since there is jealousy, and with that goes quarreling very frequently, since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not actually worldly? You think of yourself as spiritual and unworldly. You're actually living the way the world does. Coveting, envying, are you not acting like mere men? So this idea of jealousy or coveting or envying is something we understand. You know this image, right? The green-eyed dragon. That's the way, uh, poetically, we've learned to describe this sin. Jealousy, envy. Found out this week... You can always learn something, right? Found out this week, that phrase actually goes back to William Shakespeare. So it's been in the English language now for, what, 500 years? Wow. Envy, jealousy, the green-eyed dragon. And Scripture recognizes that this is a problem. You go all the way back in the Old Testament to the Ten Commandments, that basic code of conduct that the Lord gave to Israel. What's the tenth? You shall not covet. With some specific things, so we understand that it's broad-ranging. You don't covet your neighbor's donkey. You don't covet their servants, which means you don't covet their wealth, the because they're wealthy enough to have servants. And you don't covet their spouse. You You don't... And that ties right back to the the other great commandment, what? The seventh commandment. You don't commit adultery. See, adultery grows out of coveting someone else's spouse. These are all interlinked. That's the bad sense. And love doesn't do that. Love doesn't have this striving after what rightfully belongs to somebody else. You say, why is that a problem? Why does that hinder love? Well, it hinders love in part because uh, it makes us feel ungrateful for what we have. I always like this little picture. I think it's an extraordinary illustration of coveting or envy. You see, uh, little Sammy there, he was having a great day. It was hot, and he was finding refreshment with that popsicle. It was a joy and a delight. 
The world was going his way. And then his sister showed up with an ice cream cone. And suddenly, suddenly, that popsicle didn't taste as good. It was not nearly as attractive as what that ice cream cone was. He could see himself with that ice cream cone. He knew how good he'd feel if he had the ice cream cone, but he didn't have it. And so he's unhappy. He's he's ungrateful for what he has. And I can get in touch with I can get in touch with him very easily from my own life. Can you? Some of you know that I'm a, a sometime fisherman, and and I love to fish, particularly from a boat. So I've I've had boats for 50 years. When I started, I was so poor that I couldn't buy one, so I had to go into partnership with my dad. We bought a couple cheap old boats together. And then, uh, anyway, I've had boats for 50 years. A couple years ago, I had a chance to pick up a really nice boat. I'm trying to develop a new style of fishing, learn to fish the rivers around here, Delaware and Susquehanna. And uh, you need a specialized boat to, to do that well. So I was able to find a used boat. Pretty nice. I like it. Serves my needs. It's really all I need. And so uh, a couple of weeks ago, my son and I went out to the Susquehanna River on trying to learn how to fish that uh, river. And the way to do that, I found, is to hire a guide for a day and let him show you where the rocks are and where the fish are. So we went out there. Obviously, I didn't take my boat. We got to the uh, landing, and uh, our guide already had his boat in the water. And as I was walking down to the river, I thought, that boat looks familiar. And sure enough, it's the same make as my boat. So I felt good about that, right? I got a little bit closer, and I saw, yeah, it's the, the same make and model as my boat, but uh, it's a couple years newer. And in those couple years, they changed a few features that are really pretty nice. It didn't bother me. I mean, I'm glad. But there are nice features. The other thing I noticed is that his boat was two feet longer and a foot wider. It's the next model up. Now, you non-fishing people, you don't realize what a difference two feet makes in a boat. You can catch many more fish, much more comfortably, (laughs) in a larger boat. And then I noticed something else. He also has the next grade up in motor. So it's got a little more power. It goes a little bit faster, which gets you to fish sooner, and you catch more fish. And did I mention that it's two feet longer and one foot? I think I mentioned that already, right? Well, you see what's happening, right? It's really no different than the kid with the popsicle. I was very happy with my boat until I saw his boat and fished on it. Well, uh, in the end, I just had to say things to myself like, 
I'm really grateful that my wife let me buy that boat. <laughs> and, <clears throat> and I'm not going to try for the bigger boat. And uh, lots, of, lots of reasons, but see, that's a problem that's real for us. And for Paul, he sees this problem of envy taking place right in the church. So he, he'll speak in another place about people who are, are, are envious because they see the gifts that somebody else has had. One person can do something that other people can't, and, and they get unhappy about that. They're ungrateful for how God has placed them in the body, and they are unhappy because they see the gifting or the influence or the relationships, perhaps, that other people have. And, and because we're just a group of sinners that God has called together by His grace... We have the potential for all that kind of behavior. So, how are you doing in that area? And, you know, just one other thing. Here's here's what often happens with envy as well. That when I become envious, then I'm not only ungrateful for what God has done in my life, but I can feel resentment toward the people who have something that I don't have. And that, uh, that picture speaks volumes, does it not? Yeah, somebody else is higher up on the ladder of influence or status or possessions or whatever it, it is, and, and I'm not only unhappy about that, but I actually say things and do things Maybe unconsciously, but I'm still doing things with the intent to sabotage the other person. Now, folks, wherever you live, you see examples of this, right? If, if you are, I spent, I spent my life in academics. The academic world is filled with this kind of toppling of ladders. The professional world, it's filled with it. Uh, yeah, and, and church can have it as well. And that's why Paul's talking about it. So love does not envy. Do a quick rating of yourself. How you doing? B plus? C minus? Okay. Or do you get an A? You don't have a problem with envy. Love does not envy. Secondly, Paul says, love is not boastful. To boast is to brag about one's possessions or talents or accomplishments. And we have phrases that describe that for us, right? You know the one that goes with that picture. Someone is patting himself on the back. What is that? Well, that's bragging about accomplishments or something like that. Or we have have this one. Young lady says, I don't mean to toot my own horn, but I do mean to toot my own horn. That's, That's where that goes. What is tooting your horn? It's calling attention to yourself. That's 
That's how that works. But love is not boastful. Boasting was a problem in Corinth. They boasted about various things. They boasted about their leaders. It was an influential church. They had various people who spent time there. Apparently Peter spent some time there. Paul spent two and a half years there. Apollos was there doing teaching. He, he was very gifted. And these, these were leadership people. <clears throat> and here's what Paul says to them. I don't want to hear any of you bragging about yourself or anyone else. Everything is already yours as a gift. Paul, Apollos, Peter, the world, life, death, the present, the future, all of it is yours. And you are privileged to be in union with Christ who is in union with God. I don't want want bragging, Paul says. Don't want bragging about leaders. Don't want bragging about abilities. Here's one chapter later. Who made you superior to others? Didn't God give you everything you have? Well then, how can you boast as if you were, as if you, as if what you have were not a gift? All right. So we're, we're all gifted. Paul has said that in chapter 12, right? The, the manifestation of the Spirit of God, according to the wisdom of God, has been given to every believer. So God wants to manifest the reality of Christ through the Holy Spirit in your life. And God has placed you in the body with your particular talents and personality and all that to serve him. Well, Paul says to some of these people who are developing a really superior attitude toward others, God's given you everything. How can you boast as if somehow that was rooted in your own effort and expertise and excellence and so forth? Love is not boastful. Why do we do it then? Why do we boast? Well, I think many times it's a form of compensation. I'm just about ready to go to the doctor for my annual checkup. Before I even see him, I have to see the nurse. And she walks me down the hall to the, the room where you get checked out. And before we go into the room, she says, stand on that line. And cover your left eye. And uh, read the chart. Now, without, without my glasses on, the E looks just about like what it looks like here. Because my left eye is about 2200, and it, it just blurs. But with my glasses on, I'm corrected to 2020. I'm compensated. Good thing. Well, I, I think... I think bragging functions many times as a sort of of compensation. I don't feel perhaps like I'm getting credit from other people the way I should. I don't feel loved and appreciated. And so I begin to brag. I toot my own horn. I pat myself on the back 
And, and the problem with that is, well, number of problems. It's unrealistic because I, you know, I, I read things in a prejudiced way in favor of myself. And it, it separates me from other people because at the root of it is a certain attitude toward others that they are not perhaps treating me the way they should treat me. But Paul says love is not boastful. It doesn't envy. It doesn't have this inordinate desire to claim what other people have or the need to subvert them because I feel bad that they're enjoying something that I think I want. And love is not boastful. And then finally, love is not proud. Now, just as with this word for zeal, which has a positive emphasis and, but can also represent envy and jealousy, so with pride, there, there is a, you know, there's a positive sense of pride as well as a negative. And we ought to clarify that. Uh, Paul even talks about a, a proper kind of pride in the second letter he wrote to the Corinthian believers. He says, I'm so sure of you. I take such pride in you. In all our troubles, I am still full of courage. I am running over with joy. Now notice here, Paul is speaking of his own pride, but it's a pride not focused in himself. It's not a pride which says, I'm so proud of all the work I invested, and, and this church is my church, and so I take credit for all that's happened there. That's not what he's doing. You notice he says he takes pride in them. So how, would, how do we think about pride in that sense? Well, I think pride can be that satisfaction that comes from participating in something that's good, not just for me, but for others. There's a proper sense of pride. Some of you know that I'm a project guy. I just, if I don't have a project to work on, I invent one. That's just the way I am. And, and then when I accomplish it, I feel this sense of... Uh, Deep satisfaction. All right? Yeah, and, and here we can call that pride. So, well, like yesterday, we, we had a work day here. Thanks to all of those who came and helped. And Pete had as well organized, uh, I think it was 15 yards of mulch that people put out and about 10, 12 yards of topsoil and we regraded the whole back of the Halstead house and moved bushes and all that stuff. And uh, I didn't plan it. I just got to work a little bit there. But, you know, I, I like to, when it's done, walk out and look at it <laughs> and think about all the work that had to be coordinated to go into that. And, and I'm, I'm proud of what we did. I'm proud of 
those who were able to make it out and, and help, and it's, it looks great. I think it's going to look even better once the seed comes up and so forth. See, that's, that's a proper, I think that's a proper kind of pride. Maybe you have gifts of writing or something like that, and you, and you work hard at something, and, and then when you sense you succeed, you, you have a proper sense of accomplishment. And part of that for a believer is to say, this is the way God has made me. You remember the great line from uh, Chariots of Fire, right, where uh, Eric Little is planning to be a missionary in China, and, uh, but he's also found out that he can run, and he, and he goes to the Olympics. And his sister, who's also a believer, expresses to him her concern that he's going to get so caught up in running that he will forsake his calling as a missionary. And it's, it's a very interesting discussion there. But Eric's reply is to the effect, uh, I know God made me for China, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Now, you see what he's saying? He, he's, not, he's not saying, well, in a, in a way he's saying, I, I'm proud in the sense that this is how God made me and I feel fulfilled when I do what God has created me to do. Part of which he felt was to be a missionary, but part of it was to run in the Olympics. So that's a proper pride. But it's the improper thing that we need to reflect on here a bit. Improper pride is to be puffed up. That's actually the image that uh, Paul uses here. When I read that, I think about the fact that it is turkey season. You know what the big males do in turkey season? They try to look even bigger. They puff up their feathers because they want to look bigger than they are. They want to be the dominant male turkey in the group. A few weeks ago, I was driving past uh, Rock Hill Mennonite home. And there was a group of wild turkeys right on the front lawn, right beside the road. I think there were about eight of them, males and females, and, and two of those guys were in full strut mode. They were all fanned out. They were feeling good. They were puffed up. Now, Paul says love is not puffed up. That's actually the words that he uses. And he uses that because this was a problem in, in Corinth. Chapter 8, he's responding to some questions that people asked from the church who said, uh, we got an issue here. In our city, there are sacrifices that are offered in idol temples. And when they're done the sacrificing, they take some of the extra carcasses and they ship them to the meat market and so if you go out to buy meat, you have a chance of buying something that's been part of idolatrous worship. So can, can you eat that? And some people said, yeah, we understand that 
that an idol is not really anything at all. It's a non-entity, and therefore the meat itself is not a problem. Other people said, well, we're not so sure about that. We know what goes on in those idol temples. So it was a debate. Paul responds this way. He says, now about food sacrifice to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge. And I think he's talking to the crowd that says, hey, we, we've scoped this out. We understand what is really the issue here. We all have knowledge. But... Though we all have knowledge, let's understand that knowledge puffs up. Knowledge inflates us. But love builds up. Love is not proud. The problem with pride is that it separates us from other people. Love unites. Pride separates. This guy is on his high chair... Uh, barking out uh, what? Looks like maybe he's tooting his own horn, and other people are trying to communicate with him, but he's so far above them that he can't hear. Improper pride, to be puffed up. The antidote to pride, of course, is humility, which plays out in service to one another and There's the great illustration of what humility looks like. The very antithesis of pride is Jesus kneeling down and washing the feet of his disciples. Love is not proud. It follows the way of the master. So, folks, how are we doing on our diagnostic? Love builds unity, Paul says. And here's the qualities. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not boast. Love is not proud. Well, we're about to celebrate communion. Jesse's going to come up and lead us. And we'll be reminded as we share in the bread and the wine that our master is a master of love. And he humbled himself and came here not to be exalted, but to exalt us, to lift us up, to pour out his spirit upon us. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for these reminders of what love looks like. Indeed, it's what you look like in all these qualities. It's what we need to imitate and and in our best moments, Lord, we want to imitate. We want to be characterized by your character. Forgive us as we easily slip up. Forgive us as we so easily sin against the unity of the body of Christ. Bless us now as we continue our worship together, we pray in the name of and for the sake of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Amen.